continuing our series on the life of David. So we're in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 11, which can be found on page 314 of the Church Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 314. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace and with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. 
Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David when he came to him. He said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made The enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Will. Well, that's quite a reading, isn't it? It's uh, pretty sobering stuff. Um, I thought I'd just do a little book review before I um, launch into 2 Samuel, um, and that is a book called To Samuel, and it's uh, subtitled Out of Every Adversity by uh, the American um, writer and preacher Dale Ralph Davis. This is a cracking series. The the series is called Focus on the Bible, and pretty much every book in the Bible has got a commentary on it. Um, It reads like a novel, and it's especially, I'm finding it especially good in those kind of history books in the Bible, the narratives, 
Um, but it's, uh, it's great, whichever book you choose. Um, and so it's a, it's a fantastic series, and particularly um, the commentaries, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Um, they're, they're really great. Um, <clears throat> I'd just like to read you a paragraph from his introduction right at the beginning, which I think helps us get uh, 2 Samuel, uh, in fact, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, into perspective, where he says, let me hasten to add that 2 Samuel is not about David. (laughs) Maybe news to you. If you think it is, you will not understand the book. I get worried when somebody says to me after a sermon on 2 Samuel, oh, I just love anything about David. I understand, and yet I cringe. The church seemingly cannot divorce herself from this Hello Magazine approach to biblical narrative. Again and again, as we read 2 Samuel, we have to shake ourselves and say, this is not about David. It is not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. That must be our perspective. I think that's a really helpful way into uh, Samuel <clears throat> that we remind ourselves, in, indeed it's true of the whole of Scripture, that it's about God. It's not about Samuel. It's not about Jonah. It's not about Paul or wherever it is we're reading. It's about God. Um, a helpful reminder as we launch into chapters 11 and 12 of, of 2 Samuel. And I thought we'd begin with a prayer Uh, which is often used at the start of a communion service called the Collect for Purity, where we recognize that we're coming into the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-loving God. So just as we sit, let's bow our heads to pray and ask God to put our hearts right. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, we're in a short series on the life of of King David. He is one of the giants of the Old Testament, one of the great kings in the history of Israel. And he is someone of whom, before his reign, the prophet Samuel said that the Lord is going to raise up a king for you, a man after God's own heart. And it's something that a thousand years later, when um, Paul referred to David as a man after God's own heart. And yet here in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, we actually see the depravity of David's heart. And we see a man who, yes, a great military leader and a a successful king, we see him becoming a cheat, a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And this story really is is a great tragedy, but it also is a story with a wonderful conclusion. But to see how amazing the grace of God is, we have, first of all, to see the depravity of David's heart. And indeed, it's just the same for ourselves. We will never really appreciate 
how wonderful God's grace is if we don't first of all appreciate the depravity of our own hearts and how much we need forgiving. Let me illustrate it like this. If I said to you that uh, Nick sitting over there, my son, um, is in rude health and uh, has every possibility of going on to live in rude health for the coming years, you'd probably say, great. But if you'd been with us 23 years ago as Nick clung between life and death in a pediatric intensive care unit and uh, the doctor at one point said, I'm not sure he'll make it through the night. And then a week later I said to you, having gone through this journey together, to write, Nick's going to be okay, and he has every chance of growing to maturity. You'd have said, brilliant, fantastic, wonderful news. And we'd have had a weepy hug. But, you see, good news is only really good news when it's preceded by bad news. So that's why we need to look at uh, the bad news before we really look at the good news. So stay with me through the bad news. I promise you we'll end on a good news note, but we need to see the bad news too. Now, the story in David's life up to this point has been one of pretty much undiluted success. Uh, He's been an impressive leader. He's patiently waited to succeed the throne from Saul, and he's become a godly king. He's brought the ark to Jerusalem, He's defeated many enemies, and by the end of chapter 10, he is that all-round sort of schoolboy hero, boy's own hero, the kind of boy who at school won the maths Olympiad on the day he won a choral award to Cambridge. He's also the fly half of the first 15 and is singing the lead part, Jean Valjean, in the school's production of Les Mis that's been asked again play at the Edinburgh Festival. David was that sort of person. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, his catastrophic fall. Now, I think it would be a a big mistake to see this fall of David as a kind of blip in an otherwise highly successful uh, career and life. We'd be mistaken to think that David here is acting out of character because in this story I think we see David as he really is weak, ill-disciplined selfish, lying, murderous the American preacher Bill Hybels once wrote a book called Who Are You When No One Is Watching or Who Are You When No One Is Looking it's a book on Christian character And this story is about David when no one is looking, or at least when he thinks no one is looking. And yet, dark though chapter 11 may be, David finds hope and restoration and forgiveness as he steps back into the light in chapter 12. And it is an amazing reminder, this whole story, that God uses weak, fallen, frail, fallible human beings like you and me, like David, to further his purposes. There is hope for us all, and that's really good news. 
And perhaps as we look at this, we need to remind ourselves on the one hand that no one is so sanctified and so holy that they are beyond temptation. So we all need to sit up and take notice to this. And the great danger would be to come to this chapter and say, well, yeah, I'm pretty strong in this area, so I'm okay. have to remember that little verse in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we all need to hear its warning. But at the same time, no one has fallen so far that they are beyond rescuing. And if you're feeling a bit of a failure this evening, then, well, in fact, all of us, we need to sit up and have our hearts warmed by the fact that the gospel is good news for everybody. Even adulterers and murderers can receive the grace of God. So there's a warning for successful kings, and there's an encouragement and hope and joy for murderers. So, uh, our outline is on the back of the pink sheet. If you're a, a note taker, that's where we're going. Our first heading is God is judge. He sees all things. And did you notice as the story was read how David totally dominates the action in chapter 11, controlling things from his ro- palace uh, roof control center? Just look at the word sent and how it Frequently, it appears in chapter 11. Verse 1, David sent Joab out. Joab's off to war with the Ammonites. David, as king, is commander-in-chief, and he should have been with them, but he sends Joab instead. Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about Bathsheba. He should have been with his army, but he's at home, and... It's a sunny day and he's alone and he's bored and he spots a beautiful woman having a bath. This, I think, is probably the 10th century BC equivalent of watching late night telly or that kind of mindless surfing of the internet or Tinder or something like that. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. He says to himself, I want her. I'm king, so I'll have her. Verse 5, Bathsheba sent word to David. I'm pregnant. Whoops. So verse 6, David sent word to Joab. And he starts to hatch his cover-up plan. Verse 12, David persuades Uriah to stay one more night. He's longing for him to go and spend the night with Bathsheba so that he can kind of cover his tracks before we read that he sends him back into battle. Verse 14, David sent a letter to Joab. And there's poor old Uriah, little does he know it, but he's actually carrying his own death warrant. And then when David's murderous plan finally reaches its sorry conclusion, verse 27, David sent for Bathsheba a second time, and she became his wife. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 is full of action. David is in control. He's sending people out this way and that. He's uh, giving orders. He's the king, pulling all the strings. And I don't know if you notice, but in this chapter, there is no mention of God until the last sentence, the very end of verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
as uh, one version puts it slightly more accurately, the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David thinks he's got away with it. He's got the girl, he's got rid of her husband. But look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. David's done all this sending. He's hatched his plan. He's pulled it off successfully, so he thinks. No one's noticed. But the Lord has seen. And the Lord sends his man. God is indeed the almighty God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Now, there are, of course, times when it is very comforting to know that God sees all things. So when we're going through a time of perhaps illness or suffering, it's wonderful to know that we're not alone, that God sees us and he's with us. Or perhaps we're being picked on at work because of our Christian faith. How lovely to know that when we go to work, we're not alone, that God sees, he knows, he's with us. Or perhaps we're just feeling lonely and alone. God sees all things and he promises he'll never abandon us, he'll never forsake us. He is Emmanuel, God's with us. But this is not one of those comforting moments for David. As he's slowly becoming aware that God sees all things, it's a chilling reminder that God is judge. And as judge, he sees all things. David thinks he's pulled off his plan perfectly, but God has seen it all. And he's not pleased. And he sends Nathan round. Now, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who um, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was a famous practical joker. And the story is told of one occasion where he sends a telegram to 12 of his friends who are all holding senior positions in society. So people like bishops and judges and members of parliament, those kind of people. And he sends this short telegram to them all and says, flee at once, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, they'd all left the country. But in this story, David doesn't see the telegram coming at all. As Nathan tells him about a stolen lamb. Now, we often refer to Nathan's story as a parable. But there is nothing to suggest here that it's a parable. I think David is being told this story by Nathan, Nathan sort of selling it to him as, here is a, a kind of local domestic dispute, and David, you're the king, so you settle it. And David's job is to pass judgment. And Exodus chapter 22 tells us that the punishment for this particular crime is death. And suddenly Nathan has David right where he wants him. Chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. David, it's you. And you can see how David actually effectively judges himself. Look at verse 5. He's so quick to judge others, he says, the man who did this deserves to die. 
But he's so slow to judge himself. So quick to see the faults of others, but so slow to see his own lust and his own greed, his envy, his adultery, his lies, his deception, his murderous thoughts. He doesn't see it. But steal one lamb from a poor man and he says, kill him. God's all-seeing eye sees everything. And we can be so blind, especially to our own faults, so quick to pass judgment on others, so slow to see our own sin. I don't know if you noticed the, uh, the root of David's sin in the first half of verse 9 when Nathan says to him, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah. Do you see the link? To despise God's word is to despise God. I'm so glad we sang that song. I'll stand on every promise of your word. That's how we know about God. That's how we know what God's standards are, God's laws are. And if we flout his laws, we're flouting God himself. Franz Joseph Haydn wrote some of the best music, I think, that's ever been written. But his wife, um, Maria... She didn't actually care for it very much, which is a terrible thought. You think, why did he marry her? But anyway, his new bride um, had so little regard for his music that she actually cut up his manuscripts to use them for curling her hair. I haven't done that kind of thing for a while for myself. I'm not quite sure why you need paper in your hair, but that's what she used Haydn's manuscripts for. It won't surprise you to know that they didn't have any children. Now, was Maria just showing contempt for Haydn's music? No. In cutting up his music, she was showing contempt for him. Breaking God's law is a sign of contempt for God himself. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a society that's increasingly contemptuous towards God, often in an overtly hostile way, but sometimes slightly more subtly, people paying kind of lip service to God, but ju uh, just ignoring God's law. We see it in matters of sexual morality, but in fact we see it right across the board. People flouting God's law, and in doing so they're flouting God. But in case we think that contempt for God is all about people out there, the story of David and Bathsheba is here to remind us that it's about our hearts too. I mean, David, the man after God's own heart, the kind of poster boy of Israelite religion, the person they all looked up to, the king, from whom was going to come the Messiah. We just saw about that last week in chapter 7. And if he flouts God, 
Well, that's a warning for all of us, isn't it? And if David is furious over a rich man stealing one lamb, surely God is right to be angry with David and his adultery and his contempt for God. And Nathan tells him in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from David's house, by which he means his family. And if you read on the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll see the tragic consequences of David's adultery, which includes rape and murder and the death of three of his sons. The sins of the father being visited upon the children. So that's the first point. God is the judge. He sees all things. Now it does, it is a bleak story, isn't it? And I think we're all probably feeling a bit low. But there is a wonderfully redemptive conclusion to this story. So if you're feeling a bit low, tune in again. We're moving to heading number two. God is gracious. He has compassion on all people. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, the Old Testament law, and indeed natural justice, says that David deserved death. But what did David receive? Verse 13, he received forgiveness. The death sentence was commuted. In short, he received mercy and grace. Now, Guy reminded us a couple of weeks ago of the difference between mercy and grace. And they are like two sides of the same coin. Because mercy is not getting something you do deserve. So, you know, the gladiator in the arena, he's got his opponent on the ground, and he's got his, whatever it is that he prongs him with, sword, thank you, and uh, he decides he's not going to kill him. That is mercy. He's not giving something. Grace is being given something that we don't deserve. So mercy, not being given something we do deserve, in this case, judgment. Grace, being given something we don't deserve. So David is not sentenced to death. That's mercy and instead receives the full forgiveness of God, which he doesn't deserve. That's grace. Now, David's confession in verse 13 is only six words long. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, in, in the Hebrew, it's only two words long. And you think he could probably sort of flesh that out a bit, couldn't he? Not just sinned against the Lord, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned, sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Joab. The rest of the army, there will have been others who fell. But ultimately, his all sin is sin against God. And you might think it's rather quick and almost glib. How can he get off that quickly, so easily? I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, don't worry, the Lord's taken away your sin. But the point is, it's not the length of the prayer that matters. And in fact, next Sunday, we're looking at Psalm 51, which is David's kind of, oh, woe is me, psalm, in the light of this episode. So there's actually much more to it than that. It's not the length of the prayer that matters. It's God's grace that matters. And the sincerity of our hearts as we come to him. 
We need to come to him utterly open, utterly broken, utterly honest, utterly repentant. You see, to be a man or a woman after God's own heart is not to be sinlessly perfect because no such person exists. And it certainly rules all of us out. But to be a man or a woman after God's own heart is to be utterly submissive to his correcting word and utterly willing to change. David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. It does seem almost too easy, doesn't it? Though we should note in verse 10 that the sword never departed David's house and indeed his reign was never quite the same again. You might like to read the rest of 2 Samuel between now and next Sunday when we look at Psalm 51 and finish the series. But if we think David has got off lightly, we need to look into our own hearts again and what this story tells us. Yes, of course, we deserve punishment for our sin. But isn't God's grace amazing? We can be forgiven. And this is the big story of the Bible, too. It's not just the story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We've all turned away from God. But in his love, he sends his son to die on the cross taking our sin upon himself so that you and I can be forgiven. It's a book called Scandalous Grace because it seems almost so easy that it's scandalous, but it's wonderful or amazing. Amazing grace we often sing, don't we? God is gracious. He has compassion on all people. And the point of this story is to remind us that everyone who turns to him like David, wretched at their sin, pleading for mercy, will find his grace. You know, the most repeated verse in the Bible is this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. I haven't actually added up how many times it comes, but it comes again and again and again. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Someone said to me this morning, same old angry God of judgment in the Old Testament, isn't it? I said, didn't you see that the Lord is gracious and compassionate? He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And when we turn to this gracious God in genuine repentance and faith, we need not fear his just judgment. Rather, we can hear the words of Nathan for ourselves, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So there is the sorry, sordid tale of David and Bathsheba. But it's also a wonderful tale of restored lives. We haven't got time to, to look further, but you may know that although the, this child born to Bathsheba dies, they then have a second son who's called Solomon, who becomes the king, through whom the line goes all the way through to Jesus. And when Nathan the prophet sees Solomon, 
he says, he, okay, Solomon, but I'm going to call him Jedediah, which means loved by God. Isn't that a lovely picture of grace? I mean, there's this couple. They haven't exactly started off on the right foot, have they? And yet they have this baby who is loved by God. I wish I'd called one of my sons Jedediah. Such a great name. Now, there are various things that we can learn from David. The need to face up to the darkness of our own hearts. The slippery slope of sin and how easy it is just to say, well, I'm just looking. Oh, she's having a bath. See where it ends. The need to confess quickly and unreservedly. And to know that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. As the chorus goes, there's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. But as uh, we were reminded at the beginning, the book of Samuel is not a book about David. It's a book about God. The all-seeing judge who is also the all-gracious saviour. Who wonderfully shows us his mercy and grace. And he shows it to all who put their trust in him. Now, I imagine many here, perhaps most of us, have trusted in that Saviour sometime in the past. And this evening is a time to rejoice and just to say thank you that in spite of the darkness of my heart, Lord Jesus, you have forgiven me and accepted me, that you have taken away my sin. But it may be that there are some here who've never actually turned and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, as it were, as if you've always, when you've been in church, been, if you like, sort of looking in from outside and thought, I haven't quite bought into this yet. Well, why not turn to him tonight? Why not put your trust in him and say, yeah, I can see the darkness of my heart. I can see I don't deserve this forgiveness, but thank you for coming Lord Jesus, to be my saviour. Tonight would be a great time to start that relationship, to know his forgiveness and to know his grace. So whether this is something you've prayed years ago or whether it's something you've never really prayed, you might, let's all join together in thanking God for his grace and mercy. Let's pray.